The scripture reading today comes from Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through 17. Now, Jonah is a very important book uh, because it teaches God's heart for the city. And allow me to read then uh, chapter 1. We may be familiar with the story, uh, familiar with this narrative, but there are just deep, deep lessons about the complexities of our sin and God's grace in this text. Let me read verses 1 through 17. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, and we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots. And the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, O Lord, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, O Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. And this is God's word. Jonah was a prophet. He was a prophet called by God to preach to the Assyrians in their capital city called Nineveh. But instead of heading east to Nineveh, I guess it's this way for you, right? Instead of heading east to Nineveh, he gets on a ship and he heads west towards Tarshish, which is really like modern-day Spain. And, and he's, the, he's the only prophet in the Bible who was not called to preach to his own people. And these Ninevites, they terrorized people. They were a wicked people. And so Jonah, looking at these Ninevites, he doesn't fear that these Ninevites won't respond. He fears that they will. What if they do respond? And so this passage, it's going to teach us amazing complexities about sin and God's grace. There are three things. We're going to talk about the running from God, the crying out to God, surrendering to God. Running from God, crying out to God, 
surrendering to God. First, we're going to look at the nuances of our sin, running from God. Verse 1, God causes, God calls the Assyrians wicked people. He says their wickedness has come up. In verse 5, you see these sailors, they're irreligious people, they're pagans, and they're crying out to their own God. But who's the author? Who's sin? Who's the sinner that this author is really focusing on? It's Jonah. Jonah. Jonah is a man of God. Jonah is a prophet. Jonah is a religious person. And this show, shows us that sin is way, more, uh, is way much more than a series of bad things that we do, than these acts that we commit. Verse 1, you see, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. That's the Bible's technical way of saying that Jonah uh, was a prophet, that God called Jonah and that means that Jonah is a, is a moral person. He's a religious leader. And yet, this entire book has been written to focus. It's really about Jonah's sin. And it's going to teach us amazing things about our sin. It's going to teach us that, uh, really immediately, that sin is much more complex, way more nuanced than just being bad, than just being a wicked person. It's, sin is a lot deeper. It's much more subterranean. It's much more subtle. It's much more hidden. It's much more complex. And it's way more destructive than we think. It's destructive, in fact, because it's subtle. It's destructive because it's hidden. It's destructive because we're blind to it. In fact, the very things that are killing us right now, they're killing us because we can't see it. This passage shows us three levels, three quick levels about our sin. It's external, it's internal, and it goes all the way to the core. External, internal, all the way in the core. And, and sin, what it does is it begins at the core and it works its way out. That's what happens. On the external, what is sin? What do you learn here? It's disobedience. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. Nineveh is northeast and Jonah goes southwest, southwest to Joppa. And he gets on a ship and he goes all the way west to Tarshish. What's sin? Sin is visibly actively, outwardly running from God. That's what it is, but it goes even deeper than that. There's this internal layer. In verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, throughout the Bible, there's this very dynamic relationship between God speaking, God's word, and creation. There's an incredible dynamic, a relationship between God speaking and creation. When God commands something, right, there's creation power. God says, let there be light. And there was light. When we say, let there be light, somebody has to go to the back of the room, flick on the switch, and do some work. But God's work, God's word, has creation power in it. So when he says, let there be light, light happens. And it's why the prophets, they always begin with this. The word of the Lord came to me. And they always end with, thus saith the Lord. But not Jonah. Jonah doesn't do that. God's word came to Jonah, verse 1. And what does he do? He runs. He goes the opposite way. God's word, creation power. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And he goes to Joppa. That's what he does. That's what happens. And, God, you know, God's word. God calls Jonah. God commissions Jonah. That's God's word, power, intent. But he runs. In other words, sin is much more deep than this external act of disobedience. Sin has a very internal dimension. Sin is avoiding what you were meant to be. 
Sin is avoiding what you were called to be, what you were designed to be. And it results always, what do you see after this? The storm, brokenness, misery. A doctor comes to you, or you go to a doctor, and the doctor, in his 15 minutes of examining you, he's going to say, listen, you got you to cut out the sugars. you got to cut out the fatty foods. you got to lower your cholesterol. And what he's saying is, when you take in these sugars, when you take in fatty foods, when you, when you take in things with a lot of cholesterol, your body is going to function against the way it was created to be. It's going to function against its design. So if you keep taking this food in, you're going to get sick. Your body's not going to function the way it was designed. You're going to get sick. You're gonna, you might have a heart attack. You may die. And, and so in other words, what, what's the doctor saying? If you work against your design, there's going to be brokenness. There's going to be misery. And why? Be- not because you're living in line with your design. It's because you're refusing to live according to the way you were designed. You see that? When Jonah ran, he wasn't just disobeying God outwardly. He was rebelling against the call. He was rebelling against what he was, the, the power that's there. He's saying, I want my own power. He's rebelling against the call, what he was designed to be, because he didn't trust that God had his good in mind. And so what he's saying is, because I don't trust that you have my good in mind, I'm going to live my own way. I'm going to go, I'm going to live my own life. I'm going to pursue my own life without God. That's incidentally exactly what happens in the Garden of Eden. All the way, you go all the way back to the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they were called. They had a calling. Obey. I want you to obey me. And they were living completely aligned in complete consonance with their calling. But when Eve was tempted by the serpent in the garden, you, we think, oh, the serpent was just trying to get Eve to do a bad thing. God said to do this, and Eve was just, outwardly. There's some visible act that Satan was trying to uh, get Eve to uh, uh, be compelled to do. But she wasn't just tempted to just eat the fruit, right? In Genesis chapter 3, the serpent asks, did God really say this? Did God really say, don't eat this? And the text says later on, Eve looked at the fruit and he says, it, and it was good. It was pleasing to the eye. In other words, she's taking these words and she says, wait a second, this looks good. I have good judgment. This looks good. Why would God withhold a good thing from me? And she stopped trusting him. And she took matters into her own hands. She's questioning, why would God withhold something that I think is good for me? And so what we're really saying when we do that is we're saying, I don't want to trust God. I don't want to do what God called me to be. I don't want to be what God calls me to be. I don't believe God has my best interests in mind. I want to make my own decisions. I want to be for me. This is the essence of sin. Much more subterranean, you see. Sin is telling your creator. Sin is telling your king. Sin is telling God who knows your design because he has created you. You're holding out on me. You're holding back good things from me. Do you really love me? Sin is telling the king, I want my own rules. I want my own laws. A king makes laws. Sin is saying, I want my own rules. I want my own life. I want to live life my way. God didn't call us. God didn't call us because he wants to ruin your sense of identity, because he wants to ruin your sense of worth or your freedom or your potential or your joys in life. But he really wants to lead us to a place where true worth and true freedom and true potential and true joy can be found. In other words, because if you don't do that, if you don't follow that, there's going to be brokenness. 
there's going to be misery. And it goes even deeper than that. Sin goes all the way to the core. Verse 3, Jonah flees. He runs away. Jonah was a prophet. Jonah was this religious person. So Jonah is the person that grows up in a church, well-respected, a leader in the church. How could Jonah even consider running from God when he knew that God was everywhere? God is omnipresent. Jonah knows. How could he run? And here's the answer. It's because Jonah wasn't just running geographically. Jonah was running relationally from God. In verse 3, we know this because in verse 3 it says, Jonah ran away from the Lord. In the Hebrew, when you look at the Hebrew, the actual text goes like this. Jonah ran away from the face of the Lord. That sounds really dramatic. It sounds like the author is trying to poetically embellish this text, but this is a narrative. This is news. That's not what the author is trying to do. Throughout the Bible, if you, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you notice in the Old Testament especially, there's this desire to seek God's face. Psalm chapter 27. Uh, we hear this in a lot of songs. Uh, a lot of songs have been converted out of this psalm. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. My heart says of you, seek his face, your face, O Lord. I seek. Why? Why does the author say that? The psalmist knew, the ancient people knew that rather than going to God for blessing, God's presence, being in God's face, that is the blessing. So you don't just go to God for things. You don't just go to God to increase your options. You don't just go to God to, to improve your freedom, to improve your potential, to supplement your joy. The ancients knew this, the psalmists knew this, that intimacy with God, above all other things, that is the blessing. You know this. It's very practical. When you are broken with somebody, when you're broken in relationship with somebody, you can't see their face. You can't look them in the eye. When you're broken with somebody and you're angry, and you're, first of all, there's the brokenness, there's the misery, but when you're angry, what you're saying is, get out of my face. I don't want you, I don't want to look at you. I don't want you to look at me. What are you saying? We say, talk, I don't want to see you. Talk to the hand. We say that, right? What you're saying is, I don't want intimacy. I'm distancing myself relationally from you. That's what we're saying. No intimacy. We're saying, I don't want to get close. I don't want intimacy with you. If intimacy is the blessing, then the lack of intimacy, that is the curse. That's the curse. So to run from the face of the Lord means that we're running relationally from God. We're running from intimacy with God. That physical distance, the running southwest, I mean, it's an amazing picture. I mean, God says, I want you to go northwest to Nineveh, and he goes south, northeast to Nineveh. He goes southwest, the exact opposite direction. What he's saying is, I want nothing to do with you. There's a spiritual distancing, and the physical distancing is just a representation of that spiritual distancing. So in verse 3, he goes down to Joppa, and he goes aboard the ship. The actual Hebrew says that he goes down to Joppa, and then he goes down onto the ship. And then in verse 4, there's a storm. And where's, where's Jonah? In Hebrew, it says, he goes down below deck, where he lays down, and then he falls down into a deep sleep, pretty much. He literally goes down. So you have this, what is Jonah doing? God says, go northeast to Nineveh. Jonah goes southwest to Joppa, down. Then he goes, he goes down to Joppa. He goes down onto a ship. He goes down to the lowest part of the ship. He lays down, and then he falls down. 
You see that? Jonah is trying to get as far away from God as possible. Far away from God. He doesn't just run from the call of God. He goes down, then down, then down, then down, then down. He's literally trying to be as disconnected from God, as distant from God as he can, as much as possible. Do you see that? Sin is at the core. What is sin? We said it externally, visibly disobeying God. What we're saying is that we're working against the design that God has created, what his call. But at the core of our hearts, the reason why we do that is because at the core, we are avoiding intimacy with God. On one hand, we want the thrill of being near God because that's where the blessing is. We want the blessing, and yet we want it without God. So, you see, you can't just apologize for the act. It's so much more nuanced than that. Sin is so much deeper than that. It's about hidden pride, hidden anger, hidden jealousy, things that you don't want to admit about yourself. It's about hidden desires, hidden agendas, hidden goals. And those things, because they're in there at the core, they don't just bubble up. They corrode your soul as they bubble up, you see. And so there's brokenness in the core. And then there's brokenness in the, in the internal, your emotions and your psychology and how you view the world and how you view yourself. And then there's brokenness externally, how you treat other people how you treat yourself. Your relationship with God has everything to do with everything else you do because like an earthquake, boom, if there's a seismic quake at the core, it reverberates and there's aftershocks everywhere. Do you see that? That's what happens. It's not enough just to apologize for the act. And the scariest part about all this because it goes down and it goes down and it goes down and that distancing, it goes deep. The scariest part is Jonah, was he an irreligious person? Is Jonah this person? He's like this lush of a person and he's, and he's completely out there and, you know, falling over the cliff? No. Jonah was a leader in the church. Jonah is supposed to be a lover of God. Jonah grew up in the church. Jonah knows the Bible. Jonah went to Sunday school. Jonah taught Sunday school. Do you see that? Jonah is like us here in this church. That's what Jonah is. Jonah is distant not because he didn't know God. He's distant because he does know God. Later on, he explains that. He says, I know you. And that's why he's distant. That means that you can be in the church, you can follow all the laws, and yet you could be so spiritually distant from God and so broken and so miserable. You know what the bad news of sin is? It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how good you've been. Sin is always present, and it's deep. If you're wise, you would explore that. You would explore the depths of that. You would come clean on the depths of that. It doesn't end there. Our lives, they can just completely blow up. Verse 4, what happens? A storm. Our lives can just completely blow up. Because sins are so subtle and the roots are so deep, They're so hidden that by the time things actually come out, by the time they're visible, a lot of damage has been done before something really blows up. A lot of damage could be done. That misery doesn't just happen. It brews for a long time. It just brews, and it steeps, and then it explodes. Think, no one just wakes up one day and says, hmm, I hate those people. I'm going to kill six million of them. No one does that. No one wakes up and annihilates six million people. No one does that. Sin begins with subtleties. 
self-justification, self-righteousness. If anything, our moral goodness makes it actually harder to explore, harder to detect, but it's there, and it's subtle, and it's corrosive, and it's hidden, and it's poisoning our souls, right? That's what happens. It's deadly, and it's deadly because it's subtle and because it's hidden, and we're blind to it, and we don't want to admit it, and we don't want to think of ourselves that way, and that's why it's killing you. You've got to stop running. You've got to stop running from God. That's the first point. The second point, the crying, crying out to God. How does God begin to bring Jonah back? We look at storms, and we're like, oh, storms, I hate storms. We want to do everything we can to avoid storms, but how does God begin to bring Jonah back? It's the storm. This is actually what wakes Jonah up. What's the meaning of the storm? Most people, when we look at storms in our lives, when you're going through something and it's tough, when we look at these things, we think of it as, why is God doing this to me? And if God is really there, why would I go through this? We look at it as punishment. What have I done to deserve this? But if that were the case, don't you think, first of all, why would God call Jonah to speak to a people who don't know who he is, who don't care who he is? Why would God call Jonah to speak to a wicked people like the Assyrians? Why would God... Uh, calm the seas for these pagan sailors. They're irreligious. They're, they're calling out to their own gods. Why would God even consider rescuing them from this storm? You would think, so if, if sin has something to do with, uh, you know, just punishment, you know, because these people were evil. These people were disobedient and wicked. Look at the grace of God. Look at the compassion of God. Why the storm? And this is why. We always say, you know, if you take a snapshot of your life right now and you say, when I look back 10 years, I look back 10 years of my life and I realize I was so foolish back then. I was so foolish. And you come up with all these reasons why you, look, you were so foolish 10 years ago. 10 years from now, you're going to look back at your life and you're going to say, I was so foolish. I was so foolish back then because I did A and I lived, I thought this way and I did this. You know what that means? Right now, you're a fool. You just don't admit it. You don't see it, but you're a fool. It takes 10 years for you to figure that out. You see that? That's what it means. And, and uh, that means that we, what happens between the time that, you know, the present and 10 years from now? Lots of suffering. Lots of storms in your life to get you to realize and see who you are. How do we often respond to storms? The easiest way that we respond, the quickest way, the knee-jerk reaction is uh, we blame other people. And so what that leads to is alienation and anger. When you, what you actually need is healing. There's alienation and anger. And that's going to lead to brokenness and misery. Now, another easy thing that we do is we tend to blame ourselves because these storms, we see them as punishment and we beat ourselves up. So what that leads to is like self-pity and there's shame because you're going through storms. So we don't like to share about our storms. And there's alienation and because we don't want to imply that our, we're going through these storms because of deep-rooted sins. We don't want to fess up to these things. We don't want to own up to these things. And that leads to anger and, and distancing and bitterness and brokenness and misery. Another easy way that we resort to looking at our storms, we blame the world. You know, we go postal, right? We look at God, we blame God. And so we distance ourselves from God and other people and there's anger and there's bitterness and there's brokenness and there's misery. You see, every, every avenue you turn to deal with your storms, to every avenue you look, every channel that you look to deal with these storms, 
it leads to brokenness and misery. Later on in Jonah, God asks Jonah, he finally confronts Jonah, and he says, do you have a right to be angry? You know what Jonah says? He doesn't look down and go, you're right. Later on, he goes, I do. (laughs) I do have a right to be angry. He says, I'm so angry, I could die. That's what he says. Those first three responses, you know, blame other people, blame yourself, blame the world, blame God, those first three, they don't help. They're going to lead to alienation, anger, self-pity, brokenness, misery. Jonah, he's down and down and down and down and down. He's asleep, completely asleep. He's increasing his distance from God. When God's actually trying through the storm to decrease the distance, that fish that swallows up Jonah, that's not a punishment. That's God trying to claim Jonah to bring him back, to decrease that distance. Do you see that? That's the storm. Look at the storm in the text. Verse 5, the sailors, they're all crying out to their gods. They're trying to save themselves. They realize how helpless they are. These sailors, they're fearful because deep inside they know They're crying out to these gods, and it's empty. They are on their own. This captain, he goes to Jonah, and he wakes them up, and he says, you got to cry out to your God. And right there, Jonah starts to get it. There's a storm, and Jonah gets it. I can't run. I'm trying to relationally distance myself from God, and God is everywhere, and he has found me. And yet he gets it. He gets it. He realizes what God is doing there. And, and uh, he realizes the call. And, and here the captain says, I want you to call on your own God. Right there he gets it. He gets it. God's trying to get him to come back, to call on him. You see that? When the storm hits in our lives, what does it reveal? Storms reveal who you really cling to as your God, as the real God in your life. We call that idolatry. Storms reveal what you really believe deep inside at the core. That's the thing that's twisting you. Storms reveal what you really cling to as your source of help. That's what's corroding your soul. And God is confronting that, decreasing the distance with you, confronting those things. Why? So you can remove these things. That's called repentance, getting rid of the core, not the outward act, the core. And saying, I want to ink. The only way you can get rid of the core, you got to replace the core. The only way that you can get over a beauty that you've lost is to replace it with a greater beauty. And God is the greatest beauty. There's nothing more glorious and more beautiful than God. There's nothing more holy and majestic, more kingly than God. And so here's God trying to decrease the distance, and these storms are revealing what? They reveal our inherent helplessness, our weakness. All of us right now, we're swimming in a sea of uncertainty. Do you know what's going to happen to you in the next five minutes? You don't. We try to sit there and set up all these things to shield us from our potential storms in life. We literally have financial shelters in our lives. We literally have things that we've kept. If I can just get these priorities in order in my life, I know that I'll be okay. We try to do everything we can to swim and cope in this sea of uncertainty. That's what we're doing. And most of us, we're building lots of elaborate lifeboats for our security. That's what we're doing. You know what a storm does? Storm shows you Boom, when that storm hits, you know it's a storm because any shelter you've put up, any lifeboat you've built to protect you and to give you security in that storm fails you. That's how you know. It could be an economic recession. It could be you losing your job. It could be somebody else being promoted ahead of you who you know you just know that you're much better than, right? You're much more capable than those people. You feel passed over. That brokenness that's there, that's because of the core. There's something in there. You're building up a lifeboat that you think is is bulletproof, 
leak-proof, anchor so thick and so heavy that it's going to withstand any storm in your life. You build up our families that way. We're so protective of our families that way. That's why your children have to go to the best schools. That's why you have to go to the best school. That's why you have to get the best job, and that's why when you quiz people and test people to see whether there are potentials in your life, you figure out, what does this person do? You know what you're doing? You're building a lifeboat when you're talking to people. That's what you're doing. Every complaint you've ever had in your life, think about it, every complaint you've ever had, whether it's in the church, whether it's in your family, it's because that lifeboat needs to be built a certain way to shield you from the storms of life. You know what a storm does? It tests how strong those boats are. It shatters those lifeboats. You hit a storm, and all of a sudden, immediately, you cling to that lifeboat. You're clinging to it. That is your God. The idea of losing or shattering that lifeboat, you've lost all your security then. That is your God. Here's some examples. Number one, why do we all live near a big city? I mean, you know, and it's not to demean places like Dubuque, Iowa, but, you know, why don't we aspire to live in Dubuque, Iowa? It's a real city. Why do we, why do we aspire? Well, it's not a real city. I mean, this is a real city, right? But why do we live? Why do we come to places like Philadelphia? Because we want to build. Because we want to develop a craft. We want a career. We want to work. Why? Because then you can build that lifeboat. You have security measures that you're building up. That's what we're doing. It's a very, very large, common lifeboat. Then the storm comes, takes your money away, wipes your finances away, you know, maybe something happens. No boat, first of all, no boat is large enough. No boat is strong enough to withstand the power of a storm like that, to brave life storms. You know what? Because we're always swimming in a sea of uncertainty. What's another reason why we love to live in a city? We want to meet somebody. We want to meet somebody. When you meet somebody, you feel significant. You feel important. Because that is a lifeboat. That is a very significant lifeboat in the city. When you break up with that person, you know what happens? There goes the lifeboat. And you fall into despair. Those things that drive you into despair when you lose it, those things that you're so desperate to have, you're building a lifeboat. That reputation that you so covet, that reputation that you're trying to build in your life, you know, that's why we can't stand it when somebody criticizes us. That one little slight, not to mention the big attacks, but the one little slight that you hear, it just sits with you. You wake up with it and it sits with you. That's because your lifeboat is built on your reputation. Our lifeboats are a source of our security. They become our source of worth. They start out as, I need this to shelter me from the storms of life. But they eventually, because you need it, they become a source of worth. And you can spend a lifetime building these boats in your life to avoid storms. You can be building lifeboats, but all God wants to do is to, because those things will distance you from God's call. These are the things that are distancing you from what you've been designed to be, what you've been created to be. You want to seek potential? You've got to look to the call of God. But the thing is, we, we try to distance ourselves from that, and we don't need God because we have all these lifeboats. What God's doing through our storms is to wake us up. And, uh, and that's when we see all of life is a storm. And all of life reveals how weak these boats really are. Life is uncontrollable. The seas in the Old Testament, when you're sailing the seas, it's always this picture of the mysterious, the enigmatic, the uncertain. If you look from the beginning, the, the Spirit of God hovers over the water. That's right off the bat in the beginning of the Bible, God is telling us that life is uncontrollable except for God who has mastery, you see, over the uncertainty. 
It's why we often become religious. That's why we become religious people. Because being religious, it adds another layer of security in our lives. We convince ourselves, if I'm good, if I go to church, build up this reputation of mine, join community groups, do all those things, serve in leadership. That's why we look at church and even our, we look at church oftentimes like corporate culture. We've got to rise the ranks because as you rise the ranks, you build security. When what God wants is to wake you up and look at your character. That's what he wants you to do. He doesn't want, care about you rising the ranks. He wants you to look at your character, your intimacy with him, your delight in him. Do you see that? So if I go to church, if I join small groups, serve in leadership, then I'll be okay. Because if I serve God, then God will serve me. God owes me. We convinced ourselves. That's the lie. That's the lie from the beginning in the Garden of Eden. That's the lie that we're living in now. You see, that's Jonah. Before there was a physical storm, there was this tempest that was inside in his core. And when God called Jonah to Nineveh, Jonah's thinking, God's failed me. God doesn't want good for me. God's failing me. I deserve better than this. I serve God. I do tough stuff. I do difficult things. I have to study. You know how much I have to study to be where I am? I deserve a lot better than this. I've earned a lot better. Jonah's the only prophet what not called to preach to his own people. Every other prophet gets to preach to their own people, not Jonah. I deserve better than this. Why those people? There's the brokenness. There's the misery. It starts at the core, leads to alienation, anger, bitterness. Jonah says, I'm angry enough to die. We see that later on. Where's the help? We're like that. That's us. Where's the help? We need to surrender. You got running from God, which is a very vivid picture. You got this crying out to God, all the sailors crying out, clinging to their lifeboats. You have Jonah. What does he do? He says, throw me overboard. There's a surrender. Jonah's awakened from, he's down. I mean, he's not just down. He's down, 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 right? He's down. In Hebrew literature, when you see something repeated three times, that's as big as it gets. This goes five times. He's down, right? He is spiritually distant from God, as distant as he can possibly be. The storm hits, he wakes up. What's his response? Verses 7 to 9, the sailors, they ironically ask Jonah, who are you? And Jonah says, I worship the Lord. He knows his conscience. He's not just woken up physically. His conscience is woken up. He knows he's been running. He knows this is about him. He's getting the meaning of the storm. He knows this is God trying to bring me back. This is God trying to claim me back. Sailors, they're asking him, who are you? What should we do? And Jonah, verses 11 to 12, he says, pick me up, throw me overboard, throw me into the sea. In other words, I will not let you die because of the wrath I deserve. I will not let you die for me. Jonah surrenders. The seas, this uncontrollable, enigmatic, mysterious entity, right? That, that's, it's a metaphor for life. That's life. It's an enigma. None of us have figured it out. It's a mystery. It's uncontrollable. We're powerless. It's a myth to believe that we could ever have control because we never have control. But the sea is also often synonymous. You know why it's uncertain? You know what's raging? It's this tempest, this violent storm, because it's also synonymous with God's wrath and his judgment. What's Jonah saying here? I am throwing myself at the mercy of my God because I know he has found me. Let me meet him. I'm throwing myself at the mercy of my God. Before, he was distancing himself away from God, trying to get as far away as possible. Now what does he say? I give up. Throw me overboard. I need to go meet him. 
throw me overboard. Before he was distant from God, down, 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 down. Now he wakes up and he says, I want to go even deeper, but not away from God, towards God. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to sink. It goes against everything that I'm trying to do. I'm trying to save myself here, but I'm going to sink. Because he realized that this is the only kind of sinking that brings you rescue, real rescue. This is the only kind of sinking that will save you. This is the salvation we need. This is it. On one hand, submitting to the Lord, it's like sinking. It's like drowning. You don't want to do it. It goes against your impulses. It goes against your emotions a lot of times. It goes against your own self-reliance. You've got to get rid of a lot of things when you say, I'm submitting to the Lord. It's the most difficult thing to do in life. Because you're desperate for control. You want control. In fact, all of life begins with you battling God for control over your life. That's the Garden of Eden. That's Eve saying, why would God withhold this from me? He's he's battling God for control. And remember, Jonah wasn't looking for God. You know, that's what we see here. He wasn't looking for God. He wants control. He's He's been looking for control and power and identity while he's running away from true power, true control, true identity, true peace. In essence, it's only when you give up control in your life like this, that's when you find real poise. That's when you find real control, real power, real identity in your life. What happens? The fish. Verse 17, the fish. The fish is a reminder that God sees. The fish is a reminder. Remember, there's, there's a sea, a wave, and no ship in the world is going to be able to withstand this type of storm. But a fish does. A fish thrives in the storm. And so God sends the one thing that can rescue Jonah to engulf him, to swallow him, to save him. Remember, Jonah wasn't looking for God. He wasn't repenting to God. He wasn't praying to God. He was running from God. And yet, God, only by sheer grace, sends this fish that swims through the storm into that brokenness, gets Jonah, and it's a perfect reminder, I have you, I will never let you go. You see that? That's the fish. Look at the grace of God. Look at God's commitment and his faithfulness to us. It's not on the basis of Jonah's commitment and faithfulness to God. It's on the basis of God's faithfulness and commitment to Jonah, his faithfulness and his commitment to us. This is how Jonah learns that God knows him, that God, God desires what's good for him. This is how Jonah knows that he's been called, really called and empowered. This is how Jonah knows that God is faithful and committed to him. He saves him. Even though Jonah's running from God, God never, never distances himself from Jonah. Never lets him go. Look at the faithfulness of God, the love of God, the compassion of God. Sailors, they got the calm, right? The sea grows grows calm because Jonah throws himself into the sea. How do we find that kind of calm? In the midst of our surrender, in the midst of our storms, we need to see one who is even greater than Jonah who's come. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees, these are the religious people. These are the Jonas of the world. They come to Jesus and they say, we want to see a miracle. Prove to us who you are. We want to see a miracle. And Jesus says, none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, remember the fish through the brokenness, the fish has come to rescue. 
so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, in the heart of the earth. And through that brokenness, God comes and redeems and saves the world. What does that mean? Jesus Christ is the greater Jonah. God called Jesus and said, I want you to go to these wicked people. Does Jesus run? No. He obeys. He obeys, not at the risk of his life, not in fear that they won't respond, but he obeys at the cost of his life with tremendous hope that they will respond. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is in a boat, and he's with these sailors. These sailors, they were his disciples. And a big, violent, this furious storm erupts. The waves are crashing. They're sweeping over the boat. That's what the text says in Matthew 8. And the disciples, they're crying out. They're crying out to Jesus. They're crying out to their God. Save us. We're going to drown. What is Jesus doing? You know what he was doing? He was down. He was asleep. Like Jonah, he was down. He was sleeping. And he's awakened. He gets up. And what does he do? He rebukes the wind and the waves, and it grows completely calm. Jesus, like Jonah, he's sleeping. Jonah was sleeping because he was running from God. But Jesus, he's sleeping because he's connected to God. Look at the poise of Christ. Look at the confidence of Christ. Jonah's intimate with God. The calm of Jesus in the storm. Look at the peace of Jesus in the storm. The disciples, they're going crazy. They're sailors, they know. They're experts in their field. They have no control. Jesus, he's sleeping because he's so intimately connected. There's peace. Jesus Christ came down. Jonah, he went down, 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 away from God. Jesus, he comes down. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. He came to that which was his own. That means he obeyed, and he came down. Not to bring judgment, not to bring judgment and wrath to sinners, but to absorb judgment and wrath for sinners. You see that? On the boat, Jesus, he says, peace. And the waves grow calm again. You know why? What he, he wakes up. He says, this is a storm. He wakes up and he says, this isn't a storm. I'm going to show you a real storm. Notice, he doesn't say, throw me overboard. And the waves are going to calm down. He just calms it with his word. Power. There is God. Creation power. Calms the word. Calms with the word. Why? The storm calms down. But this is a small storm. He says, this is no storm. Not compared to the real storm that I'm about to face. I'll show you a storm. On the cross, there's another storm. The sky grows dark. There's an earthquake. The temple curtain tears in two from top to bottom. The tombs are uprooted. Dead people are just coming out of the tombs. That's what it says. The uh, dead holy people are coming out of, the storm, uh, uh, of these tombs. Big storm. But before this physical storm, there was a cosmic storm that was taking place. Jesus was on the cross to take the punishment that we deserve. And so people are around him. They see the storm. They say, oh, well, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he really wants him. Let God, if God really loves him, if God really wants him, let him rescue him. In other words, what they're telling Jesus is, you're in a storm. We see the storm. Cry out to your God. Let him save you. Let's see if he does. That wrath of God that was meant for sinners was being poured out on Jesus at that time. And people are telling him, cry out to your God. And he did. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, there is no rescue. There is no rescue for me. I've been forsaken. I'm drowning in the storm. Now I'm overboard. 
I'm completely separate from my lifeboat. There is no rescue for me. There's no intimacy for me. I'm cursed. If intimacy with God is being blessed, Jesus is suffering the ultimate curse on the cross. He's suffering the alienation from God, the misery and the brokenness of being separated from God eternally in that moment. And he's left for dead. And he says, I'm forgotten. I'm forsaken. Throws himself into the sea of God's wrath at the feet of the mercy of God. And there is no mercy. That's Jesus. Why? So you can experience the calm. Jesus Christ received the storm so that we can receive the calm. Will you plunge yourself into the sea of God's love? Because if you do, you will experience real poise, real power, real control. Don't just try to turn from these outward acts of sin. That's religion. That's religion. God is at the core. God resides there. You will fail anyways if you're just trying to clean these outward acts because you know why? Because it starts at the core and it works its way out. Your heart is a factory just just cranking out sin. So unless you heal the core, unless you have a new heart, you're going to continue to do those things anyway. You're going to fail miserably and it's gonna, you're going to run from God. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to go down, down, down. You see that? You have to look to the greater Jonah when facing these storms. And instead of crying out to, you know, the gods, your lifeboats, look to the only one who absorbed the only storm that will truly drown you. The only storm that will truly drown you, knowing that he drowned in the sea of God's wrath. And if God is a just God and the debt has been paid, there is the love. You receive everything Jesus deserved because he received everything you deserved. There is the acceptance. There is the worth you've been looking for. There is the significance that you need. Your relationships, they're going to fail you. Your children, they're going to fail you. Parents, your children are going to fail you. We all know this. Some of you don't have children. Well, how can I know this? I don't have children. You know this because you were somebody's child. That's why you know this, okay? We're all somebody's children, and we've all failed. Your family will fail you. Your friends will fail you. Your job will never give you that security that you're looking for. Will you surrender to God's call? to God's will for you. It's good. The Lord has promised good to me. That's to him, right? Jesus, God is always working to decrease that distance. He sealed it on the cross. That's why Jesus died. He was forsaken so that you could be fully accepted. You don't have to run. As we respond in song today, as we respond in taking in Jesus, you know what that is, that taking in, that act of taking in? That is intimacy. There's nothing more intimate than taking in the bread and the wine as a, vis- as a visible representation of our intimacy that has been afforded to us by Jesus. Come before him. Don't run. Today, come before him. God says in Isaiah, let us reason together. Come to the table. Literally, come to the table. Take him in today. Let's pray.